Thank you, Tracy. I was, I was thinking, uh, sitting, uh, sitting there trying to pray along with Tracy, and I was thinking, you know, we are a mess. <laughs> we're, we're broken. We are a broken people. And, you know, and if anybody is here as a visitor looking for a, a, a church that has it all together, I'll try to find one for you. Um, we're broken people living in a broken world under a broken government, which we'll be looking at in a moment. But we don't pretend to be anything other than people who've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And um, in any pretension otherwise, I think, diminishes God's glory. So here we are. And God has given us guidelines for how he wants us to be. Salt and light, how he wants us to function as ambassadors of Christ in this world, in this broken world, as broken people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So he's given us guidelines for what that looks like. It's called being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we enact the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect, into the relationships with those around us, including in that order of verses that follows Romans 12, 1 and 2, all the way through chapter 16, including those in chapter 13. We have been looking at Romans 13, 1 through 8 for, uh, well, this is the third week. Um, and uh, we're going to complete that today. It's our last installment, and, and we're sort of radiating out from those verses today. Now, last week, we said we have three obligations as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, living in a broken world as broken people but redeemed. We have three obligations to the governing authorities that are a part of our testimony. Two are in this passage in Romans 13. Submission, and that is to the authority of the office, whether or not we agree with who is holding that office, but submission to the office of the governing authority. Secondly, payment of taxes, which is support of government infrastructure. And third, prayer. Prayer for our leaders, our rulers. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, pray for kings and all in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I mentioned last week how many times I have not prayed for our governing authorities. And I asked the question, have any of you prayed for Nancy Pelosi or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or President Trump? Have any of you prayed for them this week? Okay, we need, to go, we need to do this again. <laughs> we need to pray for them. Whether we agree with them or not, God has called us to pray for them. It does not mean government or the justice system is always right. Uh, there are always stories of, of episodes where government gets it wrong or government will abuse this or that. Actually, I wasn't even going to tell this story today, but I, I think I'll go ahead. Uh, one that hit my family hard. Uh, when I was 13, and uh, I had a, a second cousin, Eddie, who was 17, and Eddie was the golden boy of our family. Everybody knew 
I mean, everybody loved Eddie, and he excelled at everything. And uh, I was a senior in high school. I admired him. Everybody else did. He was, he was going to make his mark. The family was at the Speedway at Saudi, uh, his family. And uh, a man who was dating Eddie's ex-girlfriend got into an altercation with Eddie and pulled out a gun and shot him twice. And Eddie died in his dad, dad's arms right there. And uh, it was ruled to be accidental. And the man never went to jail at all, which totally destroyed his father, who for the next 35 years of his life could never talk about anything but that that man was never punished. Now, there are probably other people who here, uh, here who have stories either close in or remote where government doesn't get it right, or at least it seems to us something is very wrong. The justice system is not perfect. God is the only judge who exercises perfect judgment. And he's the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, these verses are not telling us that government is perfect. These verses are telling us to obey, pay, and pray. Be salt and light. Uh, light exposes truth. It makes visible what's really there. And that's what we are to be doing in our culture. Salt was used as a, in Scripture as both a, a, a flavoring and as a preservative. It flavors food, brings out the best taste in the food, but it preserves food. They would rub meat with salt to delay rottenness. And this is what we talked about also last week. Uh, Jesus is saying, my disciples should be bringing out the best in the culture and help preventing the worst in the culture. But this will happen only if they continue to shine as lights, not tarnished. This will happen only if they continue to remain salt, which is different from the culture. And finally, we said last week that there's a big difference. And this is important. There's a big difference as we interpret Scripture on our individual role as believers and the role of government. We don't take the commands of Scripture that God gives to individuals and apply them as mandates to government. I am to turn the other cheek. I am to forgive. I am to show grace and mercy. But the role of government is not to turn the other cheek or to forgive, but instead to keep the peace, to provide justice, and to be consistent and fair in the application of law, using force when necessary to carry out its authority. That's what verse 4 says. Government does not bear the sword for nothing. John the Baptist did not tell soldiers when they asked him, okay, now what, what should we do? He didn't tell them to turn the other cheek. He told them, don't abuse your authority. Paul didn't try to get the soldiers or the members of Caesar's household whom he led to Christ to help him escape. Government authorities have different roles and different mandates than individual believers. Okay, so in sum, we obey, we pay, we pray. 
salt and light, were discerned to discern the times and influence the culture, influence government policy to reflect biblical values as much as we can, like the sanctity of human life, like the amazing benefits that Christians bring to the world. And we talked about this last week as well. And I mentioned that there was no such thing as a systematic or systemic humanitarian aid in the world before the church. As one scholar put it, there was no worldview ethic before the church that caused you to take care of people who were not of your own community who were hurting. There was no benevolence. There was no humanitarian aid. Uh, there were individuals, I'm sure. But it was the Christians who brought crisis relief, prison reform, mental asylum reform, uh, stopping in the exploitation of women in factories, child labor laws, abolition of slavery, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code, stopping domestic violence, stopping infanticide, and addressing political corruption, and on and on and on. So the body, as I mentioned last week, has addressed those things and been busy about those things, and I love that. And I know that there are a lot of yes, but questions that we could raise about the relationship between Christianity and government. I mean, what, how do we think about just war versus pacifism? How do, we, how do we think about capital punishment? How do we think about what, what should prison reform look like? Uh, there were, I mean, there were no jails in Israel, right? They had a system. Do you know what that was? <laughs> it's, it was fascinating. So how did that work? Uh, there are other topics that could be raised, and the list goes on and on, but the, there's one that tops the list for me. And I think that it was at the top of the list for the early church, and that's this issue. The issue we know as civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Here's the definition of it from the Cambridge Dictionary. Common term. Here's the definition. The refusal to comply with certain laws as a peaceful form to express disapproval of those laws. The refusal to comply with certain laws as a peaceful form to express disapproval of those laws. So are there limits where, as believers, we would say, no, I cannot obey the governing authorities. I can't submit to that. And then accept the consequences of that disobedience because that's a part of the, of the responsibility. So today, there's an insert in your bulletin regarding sanctity of human life Sunday, choices, specifically the organization that we're a part of here in Chattanooga. Uh, and, and there are so many important things that are a part of that ministry. Uh, what, what if, here's a hypothetical, what if in order to graduate from nursing school or medical school, a doctor or nurse had to perform elective abortions as part of their training? I mean, abortion is such a commitment for the political left in our country that that's not unthinkable. It's already been floated. What if churches that don't have women pastors for biblical reasons are accused of gender discrimination? What if pastors who, who refuse to perform gay weddings or who mention from the pulpit that homosexual practice is sin? What if those pastors, like us, are guilty of hate speech? As I said, what would happen, as I said, this has happened in the Netherlands 
two weeks ago. 250 pastors. So what happens is that laws get normalized. Social practices get normalized in the legal system. And then we have a problem. Homeschooling is now a criminal act in Germany. In one case, German courts uh, took the children from their parents at gunpoint. And the purpose is that the children will be educated in a way that includes social tolerance. Uh, tolerance, that is, for everybody except homeschoolers. So, now, going through quite a list, aren't I? Not every disagreement with government is warrant for civil disobedience. Uh, during a recent race riot over a police shooting, looters were asked why they were taking television sets. Answer, they're free. And the assumption was that the state failed them, and so they simply helped themselves to goods to which they believed they were entitled and, and, and justified in taking. So yeah, civil disobedience can be abused, definitely. But what if in the year 2030, families that teach our children that Jesus is the only way of salvation are considered guilty of child abuse in a multicultural society? And therefore, we should not be allowed to raise our children. Could we live with that? I don't think so. If Christians are persecuted in this country, it's pretty lame. It's pretty low level compared to what our brothers and sisters face everywhere else. We worship God with astonishing freedom. And here we are, and I'm saying these things this morning. Collectively, probably, I mean, I think it'll, in our country, it'll probably start individually, like maybe, a, I don't know, a, a cake baker. And, and I know we, we tend to think, well, that's another state, and that's over there, and that's him, and it's not me. Yeah, it doesn't quite work that way. It begins that way, and it has begun in other ways as well. Um, I would imagine that pretty soon the tax-exempt tax status that churches enjoy is going to be voted out. It's already been mentioned many times, um, especially because we run afoul of the social agenda. Uh, and there will, but I, as far as, pers as, as persecution goes, that's pretty tame compared to what the world experiences. So we lose our tax exempt status. Do we take to the streets and riot? No. But we do need to be thinking as Christians, individually and collectively, about what ifs, the, some of these what ifs. And here's why. Because our country has abandoned its biblical anchor and is now morally adrift. We have some good laws in place, but the foundation for those laws is gone, which means those laws can be replaced, discarded, new laws can come into, into play that we cannot obey. And God may call on us, as he did the first Christians, to become victims of government. Now, before we get there, there's a lot of salt and light that we need to be engaged in. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom that we need to apply before we throw up our hands and say all is lost. It's not. We can look at different places in Scripture and examine how believers reacted when they did engage in civil disobedience and what that looked like. 
if you look at the book of Acts, you see what happened when the governing authorities gave specific commands to Christians that they could not o- obey. I went through the first eight chapters of Acts this week, and just to put together, just, just listen to this. I, I don't know if you've thought about it through this lens of civil disobedience. In Acts 4.18, the Sanhedrin, quote, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In Acts 4.21, they threatened them further. This is the governing authorities, the Jewish authorities over them. In chapter 5, the high priest with the Sanhedrin said this, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then later in the chapter, quote, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And finally, some false witnesses accused Stephen of blasphemy, after which, for the Christians, all heaven broke loose. And Christians were persecuted in mass and had to flee Jerusalem into the surrounding provinces. And there's a progression of intensity uh, that we've, we've looked at before, from mocking to interrogation to threats to imprisonment to beatings to slander of Stephen to murder of Stephen and then to genocide of Christians in general when Saul of Tarsus was unleashed. So it took place gradually, but it wasn't over a long period of time. So what did civil disobedience look like for the early church? Okay, here's some things to look at from Scripture. Number one, just because government is corrupt does not mean all politicians are corrupt. It seems that Theophilus, to whom both Luke and Acts were addressed, was a Roman governor. Aristos, whom Paul mentions in Romans 16, was a high government official in Corinth. There's even an inscription in archaeology to him. Uh, Roman proconsuls were at least sympathetic to the Christians. Several centurions who were Roman officials became followers of Jesus. So there were many exceptions. Another point to consider, the corrupt nature of government, whether it's Roman or Jewish, did not in itself justify civil disobedience because the believers continued to work with and in corrupt government, being salt and light where they could. So what warranted civil disobedience? I listed a few examples in your notes, but here's the common denominator, and this is the important thing. Here's the common denominator. We must disobey the government when the government takes the place of God. When the government serves as master rather than minister. Twice in Romans 13, government is to be a minister of God. But when government becomes master over the word of God in violation of God's word, we cannot obey. In Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. That's where the bottom line is drawn. I love the way Peter and John put it in Acts 4. Listen to this. Whether it is right 
in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What we've seen and heard. Jesus told them, you will be my witnesses. And here's a very important point. When we do disobey the governing authorities and run afoul of current laws, we are not promised we will bypass the consequences of standing firm for our Lord. Daniel's three friends expected the very real possibility of being burned to death in the fiery furnace. In Acts 12, Peter was miraculously released from prison, but James, the brother of John, was executed. Do you remember why John the Baptist was executed? I'm going to read it to you. Matthew 14, verses 3 and 4. Herod had John arrested and bound and put him into prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John was going afoul of the governing authorities and John was beheaded. There are several case studies in navigating hard choices with governing authorities found in the book of Daniel. In, in fact, really, the, the book of Daniel uh, is about many things. One of the themes in this book is integrity in politics. And it is a great book for anyone who wants to go into politics and law to internalize, just make that book a part of your life. I mean, we could look at Daniel 6, where he refused to stop praying, and this pride of lions got the biggest case of lockjaw in history. You could look at Daniel 3, where Daniel was apparently elsewhere in the kingdom, but his friends were brought, uh, refused to bow down before the idolatrous image of the king. There are those wonderful stories and examples, but I want us to look at the very first one in Daniel chapter 1. And I want you to turn there now because we're leaving Romans 13, and we're going to examine, spend a few minutes examining Daniel chapter 1. Because when we read about this story, Daniel was the age of our high schoolers. When he was a young man, Daniel had to make hard choices about the extent to which he would be submissive to the government and still maintain his testimony. And one of the reasons I, I think this is so relevant is that in our culture, the university system, and that's what he was trained in for three years, the university system has become, in many schools, in many institutions, a casualty of the war of ideas. Thinking Christians who attend universities become immediately aware that universities are not universities. There is nothing una, unified about them. They are multiversities. There is no unified system of thought or worldview that connects academic departments or, or fields of knowledge together, except, except the proposition that no unified system of thought exists. That's called postmodernism. The university has been replaced by an amalgam of special interest groups who worship the Trinity. Here's the Trinity. 
multiculturalism, intersectionality, victimization. And I could give you case after case of horror stories of discrimination in our institutions where both Christian students and Christian professors who don't toe the party line have faced the consequences. Well, when we look at Daniel, here's what we learn. There are times when you can compromise, and you just what you're doing is you're compromising your strategy without compromising your principles. There are times when there can be no compromise, and you have to take a, take a stand for biblical principles. And we need God's wisdom to know which is which. Now, the background of Daniel is this. He was born in the reign of good King Josiah during the time when there would have been great revivals in the land, or at least the results of those revivals brought about by Josiah's discovery of the law of God. And then in his early teen years, going by the chronology of when Daniel was taken captive, which we know, and when Josiah was the king, which we also know, in Daniel's early teen years, just before he was taken captive, he, he would have been able to observe around him, just stunned, as Judah, the nation of Judah, turned its back away from the Lord and rejected God's law. In his mid-teens, he would have watched helplessly as the powerful machine of the Babylonian army humbled his nation. And it's likely that when he was taken, his family was killed. Whatever the fate of his family, he was torn from his home. His family never again, no contact. He was torn from his friends. If he was betrothed, his fiancee, sweetheart, from everything familiar to him to find himself in a strange land with a strange language, strange food, strange customs, and strange gods. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was the king who did this. And one scholar, tongue-in-cheek, called this Operation Skim the Cream, where he would go in and take the best. He, he plundered the treasury of the temple, yeah. But he also took the best of the youth of the land, all the valedictorians, all the Rhodes Scholars, the best of the best. And, and what we would say is he gave them full scholarships to the University of Babylon. Athletics, academics, music, you name the category. Why? Why did he do this? Because his pattern was to take the best and the brightest of the conquered nations and have them absorb Babylonian culture and to make good Babylonians out of them. In other words, they were to erase all the things that had been a part of their lives before. That was to be evicted from their thinking. Kind of like some universities today. So they were to major in uh, paganism and they were to minor in uh, evolutionary theory. Well, it w the Babylonians had their own creations, origins, stories. It was called the Gilgamesh epic. And it's famous today. So, yeah, it was an alternative theory of origins that they would have been, uh, would have been a part of their training, without doubt. So in, with Daniel, you've got a teenage believer who has just been raised to believe one thing and is now being taught something very different by people who have authority over him and over everyone around him. But instead of turning his back 
on everything that he was raised to believe, when he was faced with other worldviews, he became stronger and more resilient. And this chapter is just such a wonderful chapter for that study. But it's a great example of how we can respond when our faith is challenged. So let's take a look at, uh, at the first six verses real quickly. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now that's the history part. Here's the theology part. You, I mean, you've got you to gotta look at verse 2 through the theology lens. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. How did this happen? Because the Lord allowed it to happen. God had a bigger plan in mind, which is another part of the unfolding of Old Testament history. But, again, God is sovereign over the king of kings. Okay, look at verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect. Some say that they were made eunuchs. No, there was no, uh, probably not. Uh, That's never mentioned. Uh, No defect. They were good-looking. So there's this physical qualification regarding their appearance showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. So they've got these mental abilities, so physical appearance, mental abilities, and then here's the third one, who had the ability for serving in the king's court. They had poise, they had presence, they had charisma. So you've got physical appearance, mental abilities, and sort of a court personality. And he ordered them, him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them for a daily ration from the king's choice food and the wine which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So here you see that they're going to receive this pagan education, forced to study things that they disagree with. How do they respond to this? Do they riot? Do they say, absolutely not? No, actually, there are times when you can just accept things as they are, um, And what Daniel and his friends did was they endured the pagan education. And in fact, they became the very best students that were there. Colossians 3 tells us, whatever you do, do everything as unto the Lord. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So they they became the best students in that university system. And in verse 7, we we see a second challenge. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, which means God is my judge. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. To Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious, he gave the name Shadrach, 
which means the command of Aku, one of the Babylonian, another of the Babylonian gods, Bel, Aku now, to Mishael, which means who is what God is, he gave the name Mishach, which means who is what Aku is. So Bel and Aku, Aku again. To uh, Mishael, which means Yahweh has helped. They gave the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Names may indicate the names of these four Hebrew men, or teenagers. The names reflected the commitment of their homes to the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The names that they were given reflected attributes and actions of the Babylonian pantheon. Now, what's interesting is uh, the way that they, what would they do? How would they accept this challenge? Well, you know what they did, apparently, was they just ignored it. You can't, you cannot uh, help what others will call you. And, and, and being called by different names didn't hurt them. In fact, it didn't call on them to compromise their faith. You, you see that it didn't? It didn't call on them to, because they, there is no evidence that they ever called each other by their names, by those names. They called each other, as we see through the rest of the book, by the names that reflect the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So with each of these two challenges, they were not forced into compromising their principles. But starting with verse 8, we reach a point where one part of the Babylonians' plan is something with which they could not compromise. And ironically, it's the very same issue that we're going to be looking at at Romans. I believe it's the issue of food sacrifice to idols, uh, where, well, where Paul was dealing with a weaker brother uh, uh, description. Here's it, here it is, chapter, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now, you understand this is the king's choice food, not just the king's food, and it's the king's wine. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So this is, this is the supervisor of the guy who's just speaking, okay? Not the same guy, it's a supervisor. He said, okay, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And they were, they looked great. And as far as their 
training is concerned, look at verse 17. As for these four, four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of dreams and visions. So their superiority showed in every way. Here's the deal. If you were Daniel, how could you explain your scruples to the Babylonians who were actually trying to give you everything? I mean, your reasons would be silly to them. Here's where Daniel's wisdom shows up. The Babylonians' goal was that these young men would be given every possible advantage so that they could become the best students possible. Daniel's goal was to keep God's law. And, and it, it, I don't think it was just a matter of remaining kosher <laughs> with the food. I think it was also a matter of the food that would, would have been, and we know historically in the Babylonian culture, would have been sacrificed to idols. So partaking of the food would have been partaking of the strength of those gods who would get some of the glory for their excellence. You see the, the problem there. So uh, how could Daniel explain that to them? Well, the goals don't necessarily conflict. They, they conflict as it was set up at first, but Daniel showed the governing authority over him that they didn't have to conflict. There are times when you're not dealing with people who are exactly against Christianity, but who have other agendas. Sometimes it's possible to find a way around the dilemma. I've got to be careful how I say this, so I hope you understand the way in which I mean it. If someone in your college dorm asks you to go out and get a six-pack and get drunk, obviously you can't do that. But it may be that he needs a friend, and you ought to be aware of that possibility. When a congressman wants Christian schools to have qualified teachers, it may be that he doesn't want them to be mediocre. Um, so look for a way in between. In, in, in this chapter, we see Daniel's graciousness. And if you're going to challenge the rules, do it graciously. Don't set your up, yourself up as being better or look at others as being inferior. Philippians 4, 5, let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Okay. Then you move beyond chapter 1. And throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, certain things are clear. God is sovereign. Human governments come and go. God foretells the future of kings and of kingdoms. And all human endeavors will ultimately end. Only the ancient of days who sits on his throne will endure. Until he comes to set up his kingdom, we are ambassadors here representing him. Now, if you look at Daniel's life, if you look at this chapter, and then if you add the rest of the chapters of the book to it, you see three options. There are some things that you can simply ignore. You just let them go. There are some times when you can negotiate a compromise. But then there are other times, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, when you simply must take a stand and face the consequences. Thousands of Christians who refused to say Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus is Lord died rather than renounce Christ. If God guaranteed there'd be no consequences for taking a stand, there would never have been one martyr in Rome. 
Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. I didn't mention this earlier. The word witness is the word martyr. You shall be my martyrs. A couple of observations before we leave Daniel, before we leave our study, especially for our young people, really for all of us, but especially for our young people. I want you to notice two critical, two critical factors in Daniel's, commit, in Daniel's spiritual strength. First of all, his commitment. Daniel 1.8 says, Daniel made up his mind. That is paramount. Underline that. Daniel made up his mind. And that resolve marked his life. It made him distinctive. It shaped his destiny. Come what may for Daniel, the Lord came first. No outside authority, government, school, work, sports, music, whatever it might be. No, no, peers, uh, no, nothing else can force you to lower your standards. Only you can lower your standards. So there was that commitment. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing in the life of Daniel, and that is his companionship. Daniel had friends who stood with him, and they stood together in their spiritual commitment. Make sure you pick friends that will build you up in the Lord and, and hold each other spiritually accountable. We read in chapter 2 that Daniel and his friends were, uh, that, that, the, uh, yeah, that they were praying together. Uh, so they were just all together in the same spiritual place, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable. So, what if, here's some what ifs, what if Daniel had been a typical Jewish teenager entering the University of Babylon? What if his beliefs had not yet become convictions? What if Daniel had not made up his mind to follow the Lord? What if his faith was really faith in his parents' faith? Because that's the way I, in, I entered a university. What if his faith was not really his own? What if he had a, only a half-hearted intention that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to follow God. I'm not going to mess up too much when I go off to school. Would the book of Daniel had gone, have gone differently? Would there have been a book of Daniel? Would lukewarm conviction walk into a lion's den? Would it have allowed Daniel to become the man of integrity who ruled 67 years in Babylon? About whom his enemies said, and you have, I'm just, I've got to read it to you. This is what his enemies said about him. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence of corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And then they changed the law and made it where Daniel could not comply. So, wouldn't it be wonderful if Daniel's commitment were ours, commitment, if, if that were ours? I'm, I'm just going to mention this and let you think about it, especially you young people. What kind of person do you want to be 35 years from now? What kind of person do you want to be 
35 years from now? What do you want people to say about you 35 years from now? I know you can't think 35 years. It'll get here soon. What do you want people to say about you? Character is not formed in a crisis. Character is formed in the countless small moments of choosing to follow Jesus in the daily routine of life. And all the choices that you make from now on will reflect the kind of person that you are choosing to become. Well, I wanted you to see by exposing you a little bit to Daniel here at the end that while we are to respect our governing authorities, we obey, pray, pay. (laughs) We're to be salt and light in a dark and unsavory world. This is exactly what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did. When government becomes oppressive, there are some times that you can ignore things. There are some times when you can negotiate a compromise, but there are other times when you have to take a stand and face the consequences. The role of government is not to make my life happy, but to administer justice fairly. But when government requires us to violate God's laws, we cannot obey. The very fact that we are sitting here listening to God's word is remarkable. We have that freedom. As I mentioned, most of our brothers and sisters don't have it. And by the way, they would not want us to feel guilty for having it. They would rejoice for us. But they would appreciate that we would pray for them. May God grant us opportunities to be salt in an unsavory, decaying world and light shining forth the gospel of the love of Jesus Christ into a dark world. Lord, we thank you for